our eyes and the news has been on Afghanistan for the last two months. And we've seen America's promised withdrawal from that country come to reality. We've seen the Taliban quickly, very, very quickly come in and take over that country. We've seen retaliatory strikes by the Islamic State, the so-called Islamic State. We've then seen strikes back from the US and we've seen that in this last week almost on a daily basis as the news mounts and things change. And the ever-perceptive Economist magazine has painted two very black covers. And when you see black covers, you know there's some ominous things in sight. And back in July, it was saying the US is abandoning Afghanistan. That's what our chairman said. After two decades, after 20 years, they're just walking out. I'm not necessarily saying that's right or wrong, but they are walking out after 20 years. And then on the right, Mr Biden now has a problem, a debacle, a big issue. What does he do? He's just left a country to its own devices and in days, certainly weeks, the Taliban has come in and taken over that area. What an incredible series of events. And our aim tonight is to show that that has meaning for all Bible students. And we'll show you how that fits in with God's plan. Now, it's useful, I think, for us in Australia just to have a, a little reflection on where Afghanistan is. Uh, we live pretty much on the other side of the world, the southern hemisphere and red Australia on the bottom right of that globe picture. Afghanistan is in the top there, in the middle, and if we were to zoom in, we'd find it has some really interesting and challenging neighbours. So to the south and to the east is Pakistan, a tough country. To the east is a little slither of China, another difficult neighbour. To the north are three ex-USSR member states, now their own countries, in Tajikistan, Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, all with individual traits but being leaned upon by Russia further to the north. And then to the west is Iran. How would you like to live in a house with them as your neighbours? That's a difficult place in the world, isn't it? And when we look at that area of Afghanistan as a map, we see it as a gateway between Asia in the east and Europe in the west. It's right there in the middle, in the middle of centuries and centuries of conflict. And it's got a very, very difficult existence. We would not know what it's like to live in Afghanistan. Now, the country has a long history of just two things. The first is being conquered and dominated by foreign powers. It hasn't really had good long periods of its own control. There was one last century where a king ruled for 40 years, but it's rare. Afghanistan has generally been ruled and conquered by other people. That's difficult. And the second thing is that it, the people that live there have continued strife. They never agree. They might be extremists. They might be radicals, but there's always a radical or an extremist that's more radical and more extreme than you are. 
and they really agree. It's very, very difficult. And so there's been centuries of internally warring factions as well. Again, not a nice neighbourhood and not a nice place to live. It's difficult in Afghanistan. Now, it's going to help our purposes a lot tonight by having a little look at the history of that nation and seeing where they came from to exist like they do today. So the land was conquered by Darius I, the king of ancient Persia. And we're going to come back to him because he was in our reading tonight. It was conquered by the Persians in about 500 BC and then after that by Alexander the Great in about 329 BC. Much more recently, Genghis Khan took over the territory in the 13th century. It wasn't until the 1700s that the land was actually called a single country. Only 300 years ago, it became an entity as a single country. More recently, during the 19th century, so that's the late 1800s, Britain looked to protect its empire in India and wanted to annex Afghanistan. And by annex, we mean take it over. Literally make it part of its empire. And it tried to do that, and it warred at three times in a series of British-Afghan wars. And then after World War I, which is last century, Britain was feeling the pressure after that war. It had won the war, but it felt it very hard, and it lost the third British-Afghan war. And after that, with Britain beaten, Afghanistan became an independent nation in 1921. Five years ago, five years later rather, they uh, declared a monarchy. So there was a king over Afghanistan in 1926. Their longest reigning king for 40 years was this gentleman. And in 1933, Zahir Shah became the king and he brought a semblance of stability to the nation. He balanced things for 40 years but then in 1973, he was overthrown in a coup. So you can see what's happening here, can't you? War after war after war. Instability, then a king, and then he's out. There's a coup, a military coup. And the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan comes to power with a president. Now, the critical modern history is what happens next. And that is in 1979, and many of you in this hall will remember this, in 1979, the USSR, which was their northern neighbour, invaded Afghanistan. And they did that because they'd always been friends with Afghanistan, they'd always sought to help them and lend support, either economic or military support. But the government in Afghanistan was really coming under pressure and the USSR invaded, literally invaded, to assist the government, and the people hated it. They came in to support the government, and the people rebelled and hated it. So they came in, and there was violent demonstrations, and our chairman alluded to that in his introductory remarks. You might remember the Summer Olympics in 1980, held in Moscow. 
Here's the front page of the Daily News. Down the bottom right there, the news about the local Super Bowl just got pushed out for a few minutes as US President Jimmy Carter is pushing for a, a boycott of the 1980 Summer Olympics in Moscow. And that happened, and 66 countries said, no, we're not going. Why? Because of the USSR's invasion into Afghanistan. The government needed them, the people hated it, and the world said, not on, not good enough. Two years after that, in 1982, there were over four million Afghans who were refugees in other countries, principally Pakistan and Iran. Four million refugees. This is a country in turmoil. It's a very difficult space. And then in 1988, this gentleman and 15 other Islamists formed a group called Al-Qaeda. So he, of course, is Osama bin Laden. 15 other people, they got together and they formed a group called Al-Qaeda, which means the base or the foundation. And that was to continue their jihad or their holy war. So under the principles of their faith, most religious groups or belief groups have some principles. The Christadelphians have that. Christadelphians have a statement of the things that we believe. Other churches and groups do the same. Under the Islamic group and the Al-Qaeda, they have a statement of principles that said they are compelled to have a holy war against anyone that gets in their way for the things that they stand for. And so this man formed a group, Al-Qaeda, to wage a holy war, principally against the West, but all of those groups that got in their way. Now, the next key thing was in 1989, so we're getting closer. And in 1989, the USSR agreed to leave Afghanistan. And there was a peace treaty that was negotiated in Geneva between the United States and Pakistan and Afghanistan and the Soviet Union. They signed that and it guaranteed Afghan independence so they could be a nation once again and the withdrawal of 100,000 Soviet troops. They signed that and said, we're going, and they left. And here they are leaving, um, old black and white photo of the time, 1989, not sure why it's black and white, but it is. And of interest to world politicians and historians and Bible students as well, that period that Russia had in Afghanistan probably led to the total collapse of the USSR. So if you're a historian, you'll know that the USSR was comprised of 15 states, making up one big country. And this was probably instrumental in bringing that to an end. And the 15 states went their separate ways. And now we have Russia and 14 other states today. A very important thing for historians and also Bible students on another topic. Now, this nine-year Afghan war by the Russians claimed over a million Afghan lives, 14,000 Soviet troops, and in 1995, a group called the Taliban arose. They came to power 
and their promise was a period of peace. And they said, we're nice guys and we'll look after you. And the poor Afghanis, Afghans that had so many decades of poverty, of famine and war, and they said, you know what, the Taliban, they seem to be upholding Islamic values. They look like okay guys and they let them form government. And they did and they held government and ruled Afghanistan. And then something happened that changed the world, literally. And you know what that was on 9-11-2001, on the 11th of September 2001, when hijackers commandeered four planes, hijacked four planes 20 years ago next month and crashed them into, firstly, the World Trade Centre Towers, and then the Pentagon, and then a field of one that didn't work out. Those crashes killed nearly 3,000 people. The World Trade Centres, and you can see the hit there on the screen, screen, were reduced to rubble, and it was and still is the largest terror attack ever completed on American US soil. A lot of you will remember that. That was a big event, wasn't it? You probably remember where you were, what you were doing at the time. I can. I can remember exactly where I was, exactly what I was doing. That's a very recent event for most of us that are older than, let's say, 30 years old. It changed this world. And it involved Afghanistan. Now, the US identified al-Qaeda and its leader, Osama bin Laden, as responsible for that. Where was bin Laden? Where was he hiding? He was in Afghanistan. That's where he was at the time, under the protection of the Taliban, the same group that's ruling Afghanistan right now. So what the US did is this. They said, you need to hand over Osama bin Laden, and we need him now. And the Taliban said, no, we're not going to do that. And so the US launched a number of strikes their questions and demands weren't answered, so they launched airstrikes against targets in Afghanistan, invaded and ultimately defeated the Taliban 20 years ago and swore in an interim government. So America has been, as the chairman said, in Afghanistan for 20 years, administering, helping, maybe keeping peace and training and guiding that country through a period that lasted two decades. What's been obvious is that Afghanistan can't be ruled in traditional Western ways. We have a code of law. We have a Westminster system. We have laws that if you go out and you speed out on this road out here, you can get fined and you have to pay the fine. And if you don't pay the fine, there's penalties. We have a very structured way of life. We have a structured way of law. So does New Zealand and the US and most of Europe and the UK and North America. All through that, there is a structured way of living and that structure does not work in Afghanistan. Structure does not work there. And America has taken two decades, 20 years to work that out and last month left. In 2009, 
So we're coming forward eight years from 2001. In 2009, President Barack Obama of the US approved more troops into Afghanistan. Now at their peak, there were about 140,000 American troops in Afghanistan. You get those numbers. There were 100,000 Soviet troops that left at the very end. At its peak, the US had about 140,000 troops there. Significantly, in 2011, US forces overtook a compound in Pakistan and killed the Al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden on May the 2nd, the local time over there. You probably remember that too. That's 10 years ago. His body was killed by an assault of US Navy SEALs. You probably also recall that they took his body out and they buried it at sea because they didn't want that body to go into the wrong hands. And it's in the water and gone. And then in 2014, so we're getting closer, President Obama announced a timetable for significantly reducing the size of US troops in Afghanistan by two years later in 2016. The next year he abandoned it. He said, no, we can't afford to do this. We need to keep our troops there. So he abandoned that plan to withdraw the US troops by the end of his presidency and he said, we're going to keep 5,500 US troops there. We need them there. We need them for peace, for stability of the region. We need them to keep back the Taliban. All the work we've done, we have to have a presence there. And here he is. And he's making that presentation in 2015. And you'll see the man on his right. Uh, then Vice President Joe Biden, who is now with his arms folded for some reason. I don't know whether that's because he's trying to be tough or he was agreeing or disagreeing, but uh, that's him there, actually on Mr Obama's left, isn't he? And he was the vice president of the time and he has just um, overseen the complete withdrawal of those troops. Now after President Obama, um, President Trump came along in 2015 and he committed to continued military involvement. He said, no, we need to keep this going. If we pull people out, there's going to be what he called a vacuum for terrorists. The terrorist is going to go woof and take over. And so Mr Trump said, no, we need to keep this going in 2017. But then in 2020, just last year, the US and the Taliban signed an agreement in Qatar for bringing peace. And they had conditions for that. I said, this is the agreement, and you need to do this, and you need to do that. And sadly, the Taliban reneged on their agreement and the deal was scrapped, but they kept on going, and in November last year, the US firstly announced that they would cut their troop size in half, and then in April this year, President Biden said, we're going to get them all out, every single one, by a very historical date, 9-11 of 2021. And they did. And the withdrawal happened on July the 5th of this year, the 5th of July. The US left the Bagram airfield in Afghanistan. They didn't tell anyone. They didn't tell the base's new Afghan commander. There was no handover with the Afghanistanis. They just left.
And that was the way they decided to do it. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. It created issues. But perhaps if it had been staged and all out in the open and a big fanfare like the Soviets had, there would have been other issues. They just left. And the rest is history. That history has been a disaster for Afghanistan. So from the 5th of July, in just a matter of weeks, the Taliban has taken, you can see the map on the left, this is a BBC map, and the map on the left shows the mix between, in the yellow, contested areas of rule. So not sure who's actually ruling there. The green was the Afghan government, and at the bottom is the red, where the Taliban were in control. And you can see on the left there, you might say there's a a mix of all three, and on the right, in mid-August, some five weeks later, the Taliban were ruling the country. So only a little dot, yellow dot on the right side, contested, that's Kabul, that's the capital. That's where the Americans were evacuating their citizens, and the rest of the country is red. You know, after two decades, 20 years of American presence, and controlling, that is just an incredible map, isn't it? Five weeks, it's gone, absolutely gone. And again, I'm stressing, I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong, I'm not judging, but the world is, and the world's saying, America, you wasted 20 years. You wasted $2 trillion. You wasted thousands of your own troops' lives. You wasted tens of thousands of the Afghan people's lives. You wasted two decades. And that's the world and what they're saying and what The Economist magazine is saying and what our newspapers are saying as well. And we've seen some harrowing pictures, haven't we, of, of the locals trying to get out and they're jumping on aeroplanes and you may have seen those images of a plane taking off and those poor people falling to their death because they desperately wanted to get out. They didn't want life with the Taliban but they couldn't leave. President Biden was asked by reporters about the imminent withdrawal of the last American forces, and he said, I want to talk about happy things, man, and I can understand that. It was a tough period for the US president. Many, many tens of thousands of people are dead, and the country has left. Imagine living in that country, friends. There's only two things that are guaranteed in Afghanistan. One is foreign control, and the other is internal strife between their factions. And it continues today. It's a terrible, terrible place to live. Now let's just pause for a second on the history and just explore a couple of things before we go to the Bible to make sense of all of that. You might have asked yourselves at some point, what's the difference between all these groups? And there is some subtle differences. They're all radical jihadist groups. The first one on the screen is Al-Qaeda. It means in Arabic, the foundation or the base. That's what they're saying. This is their base. It was founded in 1988 by Osama bin Laden. It's a really extreme group. And you can see that from the 9-11 attacks, and they use a guerrilla-style warfare. 
Guerrilla-style warfares are not something that the US are good at fighting. I found that in Vietnam. It's not a thing that NATO did well at. It's not a thing that Australia would ever do well at. And that's what these guys do their best at. The Taliban, the second one on the screen, they're the ones that have just taken over the nation right now. And there are actually many Taliban groups. You might have heard or thought that there was one Taliban group. There's many, many ones. And the word Taliban means a student in Arabic. They were founded in 1994. They have the biggest following. It's a very, very big group. And they're less extreme. And I deliberately put an exclamation mark there. They're extreme, but they're, they're less extreme. They too use guerrilla style. But what's really, really interesting is that Al-Qaeda don't like the Taliban. Why not? Because they're not extreme enough. And so sometimes the Al-Qaeda have a go at the Taliban for not being extreme enough. That's how radical these groups are. The third one on the screen is the Islamic State, so-called because it's not a state. But they call themselves ISIS or the Islamic State. It was formed in 2014 as a splinter group from people in the Taliban who weren't happy. They're extreme as well. But they don't do the guerrilla stuff as much. They use very traditional combat. combat. Um, and they are also experts at social media. So that's why there's been hundreds and hundreds of people from, say, the UK that have left the UK, normal citizens, and seen social media and gone to Afghanistan to fight for the Islamic State. They've mastered social media and their international attraction and draw and pull for people is huge. And then there's a separate group, the Islamic State Khorasan Province. They're known as the ISIS-K or the ISKP. Same thing. They were formed also from the Taliban, people who thought that the Taliban wasn't strict enough, believe it or not, in 2015. They're a branch. They operate in northeast Afghanistan and they're hostile to the Taliban. They're the guys that had the suicide bombing this week. Taliban you're not tough enough. Again, how would you like to live with those people as your neighbours? It's a difficult country to live in. Now, another question you might have asked is, where does the Taliban get its money? And I had a, a big smile when I asked myself the question, and as with all of us these days, I went to Google and I started to type, who funds the Taliban? And as soon as I typed who F, Google defaulted to the rest of the sentence, who funds the Taliban, i.e. the whole world has been asking that question. And I was just one of thousands that had typed that into my Google search. And this is the answer that Google will give you. Who funds the Taliban? Well, there's a lot of funders. A very, very big one is through the sale of drugs over $400 million in opium production per year, and they take a cut at every point of the process, from the growers, the processors, the sellers, 10% at each point. And Afghanistan produces, over the last five years, 85% of the world's poppy production. It's huge. All into Taliban arms. Mining 
metals and particularly rare earths, another huge earner, 400 million. And that's why you've seen China start to get interest. Why is China interested? China doesn't do politics. China does dollars. That's all they're interested in. Russia, Mr Putin is up there and he's got a very savvy political mind. China doesn't do that. They're just interested in their wallets and rare earths. That's why China's coming to say hello to the Taliban in Afghanistan. Extortion and taxes, exports, also including poppy, uh, but also auto. Don't get deceived, they don't make cars. What they do is they get old wrecks and reassemble them and sell old cars as new cars, but they do pretty well out of it. They've got some real estate. They take donations from private and institutions and they take donations from countries. Who's the biggest contributor to the Taliban? Which country? It's Russia. And the other countries that contribute to the Taliban are Iran, Pakistan, and somewhat surprisingly, Saudi Arabia. They all bankroll the Taliban. So they're very, very wealthy. You can see there, their annual revenues are estimated, and that's all it can be, at $1.6 billion per year. Friends, What's the relevance to the Bible? We're going to go to the prophecy of Daniel. And Daniel is one of the most beautiful books in the scriptures. And I would encourage all of us to become familiar with this book, especially maybe our younger ones. Make it a challenge to learn this book, to get our head around the prophecies in it, because there's not a word wasted from our Father, the God of heaven, it's a magnificent book. First of all, what's a prophecy? A prophecy is something that a prophet, a person making the prophecy, says will happen in the future. So Daniel was a prophet and Daniel came along about 600 years before Jesus Christ and said, as he was informed by God, he claims, these things are going to happen in the future. That's what a prophecy is. And his principal prophecy, and the main chapter in the entire book is in chapter 2. We don't need to go there, we'll just put it on the screen. Chapter 2 is about a vision, a prophecy of a man. A strange man because the man was made of four metals. It had a head of gold and chest and arms of silver, belly of thighs of brass, legs of iron, but its feet were unusual too, they were made of mixed iron and clay. And this man was standing there, all of these different metals, and a stone came out that was cut out of a mountain without hands, and it hit this image at the feet and, and blew it up, and it became like dust, and the stone grew to fill the whole earth. And Daniel says, that's a picture of all of the kingdoms of this earth after Daniel's time, going to get hit by the stone of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who will destroy the kingdoms of men and set up a worldwide kingdom. Two comments. The first is, we've put the nations on the screen there. Daniel chapter 2 doesn't name the nations. Daniel chapter 8 names two of them. So we've got with certainty what the second and the third is. And all historians will tell you what the first and the fourth is. So there's no issues there. The first kingdom, Daniel says this, was you, Babylon. 
Nebuchadnezzar. The second was the Medes and Persians, says Daniel in chapter 8. The third was the Greeks in chapter 8 as well. And the fourth, well, he doesn't name him, but everyone can work out, uh, all Bible students, that it was Rome. The second comment is this is important because the Bible way of presenting things is always to say the end picture at the start. Daniel 2, the very, very first presentation, says the end picture. Christ has destroyed this world. The world's at peace. The kingdom of God fills the earth. And it says that at the start of the prophecy. That's a consistent Bible way of doing things. Genesis chapter 1, the creation of the world. Genesis chapter 2, lots more details. Zechariah 1, the first night vision. The second, lots more detail. Revelation, the first vision and the remaining more detail. So this is the big picture. When we go to the subsequent prophecies, we get more detail. So if we went to chapter 7, which is the chapter before we read tonight, we get that this head of gold was no longer called a head of gold, but it was like a beast, a lion, an interesting lion with wings. That was the Babylonians in chapter 7. But here's where we want to concentrate our thoughts. Also in chapter 7 were the Medes and Persians, no longer a metal, no longer silver, but now identified as a beast as well. In fact, that beast was a bear. And that bear was told that it would devour much flesh. It was hungry, it was ravenous, it would take on the world. And that's what the Medes and Persians did. And Darius was the first, was the first king to take over at a world level Afghanistan when he ruled his kingdom, the ancient kingdom of the Persians. Let's pick it up in tonight's reading where we see some even further detail from chapter 7 and we'll pick it up in chapter 8 and verse 2. I saw in the vision, so it's clearly a vision. When I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, the province of Edom, and I saw in the vision, it's repeated three times in the first two verses. Verse 3, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, there was a ram. That's the ram on the screen. And he was standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. Both horns were pretty big, but one was bigger than the other. And the higher one came up last. So that's why it's the, the Medes and the Persians, two horns. And the, the Medes started first, but then disappeared. The smaller horn disappeared and the bigger horn survived. And it became the kingdom of the Persians. And look what the Persians did in verse 4. They charged westwards and northwards and southwards not eastwards, because they started in the east. The Persians started over there in the east and they ran west and north and south. And verse 4, no beast could stand before him. There was no one who could rescue him. He did as he pleased and he became great. There's the ancient kingdom of Persia. And Daniel made a prophecy about that. Beautiful, incredible. Look at the detail. And it all came to pass. Now, this Persian kingdom included Afghanistan. In verse 5, it was succeeded by another kingdom. And this one lines up with the 
Grecians, the Greek kingdom, or the belly and thighs of brass back in chapter 2. And here, in chapter 7 rather, it's represented as an animal, and the animal that God selects is a leopard. A funny leopard because it had wings. So this winged leopard is known for its speed. It's very, very fast. All leopards are fast. And it's agility because it's got wings. In chapter 8 that we've just read, it had uh, verse 4, it came from the west across the face of the whole earth without even touching the ground. It had this huge, conspicuous, notable horn, Alexander the Great, and it came to the ram and beat the ram and destroyed it. And it did. And Alexander the Great took over the earth. Also in that chapter... Seven is a fourth beast, an indescribable, crazy beast, which in chapter 9 comes out of one of the horns of Alexander's four generals. I can't talk for too much more about that right now, but that's a subject for another night. Interestingly, what we will note in green on the screen in chapter 8 is that that power was at the latter end. It finished at the latter end just before Christ comes back. And that power will fight Christ in verse 25 and it will be defeated by Christ in verse 25. This power that comes out of this fourth beast will fight Christ at his return. That power we're going to find in a couple of minutes is the power of Russia. Now here's Alexander's empire and you can see the four areas there, the yellow and the purple and the green and in the far west the pink area of four generals and they took on that area but the big red line all around the edge is his total kingdom taken in years. It was an incredible advance. And what's interesting is he went all the way to the east and took Afghanistan. Alexander the Great took Afghanistan and in fact he then married his favourite wife from that place who he met over there. Her name was Roxanne. Putarch says that he was the only woman Alexander ever loved. She gave birth to a son, Alexander IV, after Alexander's death. But one of the generals had her killed and her son killed. Cassander was his name, and he killed them both so that he could claim the title as king of Macedonia. So Alexander the Great conquered Afghanistan and took a wife from Afghanistan and brought her back, the only woman he really loved. There's Afghanistan roughly laid out on a map. It's a really difficult exercise to do. You can see that most of Afghanistan today was in that original empire of the, uh, of the fourth general. Now, I need to tell you one more thing. Afghanistan died early. His child was unborn. His wife was pregnant. And ultimately, his whole kingdom was distributed to his four generals. And to learn about what happened to those generals and what happened to Afghanistan, we need to come over to chapter 11 of Daniel. 
This is a wonderful chapter as well. And Afghanistan, uh, sorry, Daniel 11 speaks about the same things. We can't go through this in detail. In verses 1 and 2, it speaks. Verse 2 there, verse 1, Darius the Mede. Verse 2 about the Persians. So there's the Medes and the Persians. In verse 2 at the end, it speaks about the next kingdom of Greece. And he'll be mighty in verse 3. And in verse 4, his kingdom would be broken and divided into four bits. So exactly the same as chapter 7 and exactly the same as chapter 8. Let's follow that on the screen. We've got the Medes and Persians, tick. We've got the Greeks, tick. We've got the Greek Empire split into four sections, tick. And then what we see in this chapter is a consolidation of the four kingdoms into two principal kingdoms. Two in the north called the King of the North under Seleucus and two in the south under Ptolemy called the King of the South. And the rest of this chapter is about the King of the South and the King of the North constantly fighting and constantly having battles. At the end of the chapter... In chapter 11, verse 40, we again, same as chapter 8, have a reference to the time of the end. So it leaves all of the history and it says, come right up to the time of Christ's return, verse 40, right at the time of the end, and the king of the south and the king of the north are still going to be fighting. Now, the beautiful thing is that the king of the north defeats the king of the south but then is defeated by our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 45. Those areas cover the same areas which we won't go to tonight in Ezekiel 38 with that northern confederacy and a southern group of resistors. Now, if we were to piece together that Ezekiel 38 and the Seleucid kingdom of chapter 7 and chapter 8 we would find that Afghanistan is in the Seleucid Empire, in that king of the north, in the fourth general, Seleucus, in his territory. And then as Daniel 8 and Daniel 11 said, if we come right to the end, just before Christ comes, there's going to be still a king of the north, but Ezekiel 38 says that king is going to be called Gog which lines up with Rosh and Russia. So today, Afghanistan is in the King of the North area to be reigned and ruled by Russia. Now, Afghanistan and Russia have had a crazy history together. They have been very, very close. They have unfortunately witnessed Russia's invasion of that country, but they have been very close. They had their first diplomatic relations in 1837. 1919, the Soviet Union was the first country to establish relations after Britain was beaten in that war. 1921, they signed a friendship treaty, their buddies. 1953, Afghanistan looked to the Soviet Union and said, we need your help. And in 1956, Soviet Premier Khrushchev says, I'm happy to help. And he gives them more than a billion dollars in Soviet financial and military aid. 
1973, when the Public Republic was established, they had links to the USSR. In 1978, the President signed another friendship agreement with the USSR. In 1979, yes, they did invade Afghanistan, but to prop up the government. And then, in 1989, they had to leave. They signed a treaty. In 2005, they committed to giving Afghanistan helicopters and other military equipment worth US $30 billion, a million dollars. In 2014, Afghanistan was one of the few countries that acknowledged and accepted Russia's annexation of Crimea. That's interesting. 2019, they had a celebration for 100 years of diplomatic relations. So the Bible said Afghanistan's got to be part of that fourth empire, part of the king of the north in Daniel 11, part of Russia's broad sphere of influence. And when you look at the last 100 years, they've been very, very close. And even in the last year, this one happens to be from 2015, uh, Russia said we could gift them helicopters, etc., to help them out. Last year, Afghan crisis, Russia plans for new era with Taliban rule. And this is what they've said, their plans for a new era, this is earlier this year rather, when US and European governments race to get their citizen and Afghan colleagues out of Kabul this week, Russia was one of the very few countries not visibly alarmed. They said, that's fine, we're happy with that. Russian diplomats described the new men in town as normal guys. Their UN representatives spoke of a bright future of national reconciliation. Russia and Afghanistan are very, very close. Here they are, the Taliban meeting Russian special envoys to Afghanistan in 2019 to mark the 100th anniversary of diplomatic relations. It was a festive time. Here's one from the Moscow Times, the Russian newsletter. And this has just come out in the last few weeks and Moscow is saying Russian officials are taking satisfaction from their principal global adversaries humiliation as they prepare to work with the Islamist militia, the experts told the Moscow Times. You can't blame Russia, they said. This is Moscow Times reporting. You can't blame Russia for being a little smug about what is happening in Kabul. This is a PR disaster of enormous proportions for America. The desperate images from Kabul airport will go down in the history books. So right up to this month, Russia's saying, America's gone, PR disaster, terribly embarrassed, we're smug, you guys lost, you go home. And the relationships that we've had with Afghanistan for a hundred years have endured and we're here to help you out. And that's exactly what Daniel said and it's exactly what Ezekiel said in chapter 38. We don't need to cover these, did we? There was a suicide bomber that occurred which killed 169 people in Kabul. President Biden stood up and he said, I'm not happy with that. 
He said, we've got long memories. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. And yesterday they did, and they launched a missile strike which took out an Islamic State terrorist described as being a mastermind of the bombing attack. So in conclusion, we see the development of two sides. We don't see the development, we see the continued development of two sides. We see an east versus west. And the Bible says, the prophets say, that Afghanistan was not going to stay with the west that the West wasn't going to stay in Afghanistan, that Afghanistan aligns itself with Russia. That's what Daniel chapter 7 said. It's what chapter 8 said. It's what chapter 11 said. It's what Ezekiel 38 says. There'll be a king of the north, and the king of the north will rule over that ancient Seleucid empire, and Afghanistan was part of that empire. And what I think is beautiful is that after Mr Biden is finished, there won't be any US soldiers left. None. They're all gone. That's the way the Bible said it. It's not an American area. It's not a US area. It's a king of the north area. And every soldier's going home. President Obama wanted to keep 5,500. Trump wanted some there. Biden said they're all going. Every single one, we're out. And the Russians are there ready to walk in. Some of you will have meaning of this quote in the exposition of Daniel where Brother John Thomas, Mr Thomas, wrote that the King of the North in his Gogian manifestation will include the area of Afghanistan. I only add that out of interest. What have we seen tonight? We've seen significant action in Afghanistan We've seen that the Bible prophecies, principally in Daniel, in Daniel 7, 8 and 11, but also in Ezekiel, suggest that Afghanistan will not be aligned and not be controlled by the West, but it will be aligned with the King of the North, with Russia. It had to leave, America had to move out, and it appears that that has happened just in these last few months. And finally, we note that the fulfilment of past prophecies make fulfilment of future prophecies absolutely certain. And I love that. I love that I can go to the Bible and I could read Daniel and I can see all these things that Daniel the prophet said will happen and they have happened. And then I can tell myself and my wife and my children and my neighbours, you know what, I believe based on the ones that have happened that the others are going to happen too. And the others spoke about Christ's return and the defeating of Russia, the defeating of that northern confederacy and the rock that will be set up and cover this whole earth. And that's what I can't wait for. So we'll see what happens in Afghanistan and we'll watch the media over the next few months. But what is going to happen is that every single one of these prophecies will be completed. And by God's grace, we can share in the outcomes of his word. Thank you.